We begin in our, our, where we are in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. Just get their attention by waving to them. They'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along and make more sense of this evening than you probably otherwise would be able to. While they're doing that, just a reminder, Christmas program is... Uh, next Saturday night and Sunday night, uh, entitled Emmanuel, God with us. And so an evening of music and media focusing on our Savior's birth, 6 p.m., both Saturday and Sunday. And uh, the whole family will, will be, uh, everyone will be coming into the room, kiddos and all, into the sanctuary. And again, just a reminder, great opportunity to invite friends and loved ones to uh, come on out for Christmas programs. So often people are uh, open to that this Christmas season and completely uh, ignorant of the fact of what the season is all about. And I was just reading, what was it in the news here uh, last night or something somewhere where there was a big uh, hullabaloo in one of the cities in the United States where they uh, took in, and uh, for the holiday season they put a uh, 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 menorah, something related to the Jewish religion, and then instead of a manger scene for Christmas, they put a Christmas tree there. <laughs> they just go. They actually believe that a Christmas tree is the symbol of Christmas for Christians if they're trying to put that together. So, anyway, one blunder after another, but it just tells us that people don't understand the reason for the season. This is a great way to find that out. I'm looking forward to it. See what the Lord has put together and just basking under the work of his spirit that evening. So be sure and come on out. Chapter 16 of Second Kings. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. So now here we are, we're looking at the southern kingdom of Judah. He was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. And so here is another uh, king in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, only eight of the kings did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This is another one that didn't do what was right uh, in the sight of the Lord. And uh, we're given some examples of that. And in fact, he was up to this point in time, he's the worst, most evil, wicked king that the southern kingdom of Judah had. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and uh, so they were all into idolatry in the northern kingdom of Israel. And even beyond that, indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So this is a very low point. Now, you, at this point in time, you've got Israel that is just like off the graph evil. Under Ahaz, Judah is very, very evil. Uh, he is following the idolatry of the northern kingdom of Israel, but now he, he is actively involved in the worship of an ancient deity known as Molech. And what the worship of Molech involved was a, involved a sacrifice of one of your children. So they would take this image of Molech. It could be made out of uh, some kind of a stone or something like that, or it could be metal. They would heat it up red hot, and it would be like this, and they would roll their uh, newborn babies into his arms and down into the fire. And it was 
uh, a giving of your best, so to speak, in order to have the favor of Molech. And so terrible, terrible. This is the highest position in the land. Uh, and, and this is supposed to be the people of God. And so that's what's going on. That's how low uh, things have uh, come at that point in time. It is possible that this offering of the child in this form was uh, could have also been uh, the worship of Baal. Most often that kind of worship was associated with a god by the name of Molech. Molech was an ancient deity that was essentially the worship of lust. And uh, but this uh, some some worshipers of Baal also engaged in this if they were kind of in an extreme uh, sect of those that worship Baal. So at any rate, this is where this guy's head is at and his heart is at and he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places, on the hills and under notice the word every green tree. So he fills the entire land of Judah with idolatry. This is miserable. You, you consider you, here you are uh, uh, um, among those that love God that are still in Judah. The king doesn't represent your convictions, obviously. And you've got this king for all of these years. And he, this is what he does with his, uh, at least one of his sons. This is what he fills the land with. I mean, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. But, but that was the condition of of the land, filled with idolatry, endorsed from the very uh, highest position in the land. And then Reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who was the king of Israel, they came to Jerusalem to make war uh, against Ahaz, and they besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't overcome him. Here's the beef that they had with him. Uh, Rezin, of the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son, uh, who was then the king of Israel, they were trying to put together a little confederation of nations in order to resist the expansion of the Assyrian Empire or kingdom. They viewed it as a threat, thought if we could band these two, three, four, five, six uh, nations together, we would have a chance of withstanding them. So they uh, approached uh, uh, Ahaz to become a part of that confederation. He, uh, in his particular condition, has no beef with the Assyrians. It may be a purely political move. He doesn't want to fight with the Assyrians. They're the ascending power of the world. Why would I want to pick a fight with them? So he refuses to join their alliance. And uh, so they, in turn, attack him militarily, probably with the idea of throw, overthrowing him as a king and then finding another king who would be uh, sympathetic to joining their alliance. And at that time, Reason, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria, and he drove the men of Judah from Elath. And then the Edomites went up to Elath, and they dwell there to this day at the time of, of this writing. And so in this pickle of being attacked now and under siege from these two kings, Ahaz then sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria at the time. And he said, I am your servant and your son. He offers to make uh, Judah and himself a vassal. Uh, a, a satellite nation as a part of, of the Assyrian Empire. I'm your servant. I'm your son. Here's my request. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. 
Ahaz then took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. He sent it with the request, sent that as a presence uh, to the king of Israel. And so uh, money talks. And uh, and so he beefs up the request with money. Of course, that's what it would have taken to get any kind of attention to uh, enact a, a military campaign. They're expensive then. Uh, they're expensive now. And so the king of Assyria, he heeded him for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, the capital of Syria. He took it, carried its people away captive to care. And then he also killed the king, uh, the king Rezin. And so uh, the, uh, the, he does exactly what's been requested by Ahaz. And so Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and uh, probably Tiglath-Pileser in defeating Syria called all of these vassal nations in their heads to come join him in some kind of a celebration over the vict- victory over Syria. And so... Ahaz went there now to be a part of it. And while he was there, he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And so King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, the design of the altar, its pattern, according to all of his uh, workmanship, with the request that he would then build him this altar. Now, we don't really know whether this altar... Uh, was an altar that belonged to the Syrians or whether it belonged to the Assyrians. And so, but either way, it's a, a bad thing. So he goes to, goes to Damascus, he sees this altar and it catches his eye, you know, like this work of art. And so he's kind of awed by it and, uh, and, and he wants a, has all the dimensions made of it, sends it back to Judah so the high priest can then uh, oversee the building of a replica of that to use in the worship of the Lord um, in in Israel in Judah is a part of idolatry. Whenever I read this kind of thing, a funny incident happened to me a few years ago when we had the privilege of being in Israel uh, with our uh, with our extended family, Karen's parents, and also our daughters and sons-in-law, and then the grandkids. And I was holding. Uh, the, our youngest granddaughter, A. May, I don't know how old she was at the time, four or five years old, very small. And uh, so we went in on one of the days we had gone to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial, and done a couple of other things. And it was about lunchtime and we were in the Israel Museum, a very nice uh, museum, lots of antiquities and all. So I was carrying her through the museum. And, uh, man, you know, grandpas, you just love holding them any, as long as then they get so big you can't hold them. But that's another problem. So we're going in there, and we walk into this one room, and Amy cries out, and she says, Papa, idols, idols. So there you are. I mean, here we're in one of the premier, you know, museums in terms of Middle Eastern antiquities. People are all over looking around in there. And, oh, my, look at this is the Babylonian, and here is the image of Molech and Ashtoreth and all these kind of things. And they're looking at all of this idolatry, you know, and kind of wondering at how old it is and all. And it takes a five-year-old to walk in and say, this place is just crammed with idols. So this is what he was, this is the kind of thing he, he was involved in. Now, it might have been an altar of Syria, which is ridiculous, because why in the world would you replicate an altar to a God who couldn't even protect the Syrians from being defeated. 
And then, but it might very well have also been a replica of an altar uh, of the Assyrians. And so in order to, uh, you know, now he is, he's an evil king. He's unified with uh, Tiglath-Pileser in Assyria. And so he figures he'll get one for the land uh, as well. But it's a bad mood move. And Urijah, we're told in verse 11, shame, shame, shame on him, by the way. He's the high priest. He should have stood up to the king. Many did stand up to the kings when they were asked to engage in idolatry or do something contrary to the law of Moses. He probably to save his skin, but he never gave God a chance to protect him or for his name to go down in the book as a heroic name. It's a name that's in the mud here. Because instead of standing up for God, he yields to this king and he built the altar according to all that the, all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. And so Urijah, the priest, made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. So he's either really quick or that was a long trip and uh, probably a little bit of both. And then the king came back from Damascus when he did. The king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and he made offerings on it. And so he begins there. He's starting to make all of the offerings that were prescribed in the law of Moses. So he burned his burnt offering on it, his grain offering. He poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the Lord. This guy's got a you talk about a guy that can compartmentalize. He's rolling his babies into the fire in the worship of Molech, but he's being very careful to offer all of these sacrifices to the Lord. I mean, it, it, it is scary. You get away from the word of God. It's scary what some of us, at least, are capable of to convince ourselves that, yeah, we know. I mean, we know I got a lot of bad stuff happening over here, but, you know, I'm doing this other stuff for God over here. And so it must all, you know, weigh out. It doesn't weigh out for the Lord. And so he is bringing all of these offerings and offering them on the altar. And then he decides he wants to give the altar a little more of a prominent place there in, in the area of the temple. And so he bought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord. This was the legitimate bronze altar that um, God had told Moses was to be built and where it was to be placed in the courtyard of the temple. So he took that and, and removed it from the front of the temple between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. So he puts it in an inferior position. And then King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, the, oh, the great new altar, you know, everything's got to be bigger and better and new, you know, the old ways aren't, aren't good enough. On the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. And thus did Urijah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Listen, you got a king like that and you got God. I mean, you got to got to choose who you're going to obey. And, and he he goes with the king. And so his name is mud. And then King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts 
and that held up the, the big bronze laver for the washing of the priests. He removed the lavers from them. He took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under them, and he put it on a pavement of stones. He also removed the Sabbath pavilion, which we don't, nothing in the law of Moses about that, which uh, they had built in the temple and removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Syria, which means probably one of two things. He's he needed to remove all of these things. These were all made uh, all made of very valuable materials, bronze and lots of other things. And so he could have used this in order to pay off the the Assyrians to fight this battle or it may very well be. He knows now that I'm a vassal of Assyria. Assyria is going to be sending emissaries here when they see the beauty of these objects. They'll just loot us outright. And so he decides uh, knowing them a little bit, you know, these strange bedfellows, you know, he decides, well, we'll hide it so uh, we don't uh, tempt them uh, at all. So a lot of politics going on here and very, very little God and uh, very, very little uh, prayer uh, uh, happening. And so the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then Hezekiah, his son, uh, reigned in his place. And so there's no really any good news out of the life of Ahaz at all, uh, except for one of the sons that he brought into the world, a man by the name of Hezekiah, who will become one of the his his name is heroic, one of the great kings in the history uh, of of Judah. And so here is this uh, very, very godly son uh, born uh, into and under the influence for many, many years of a very, very evil, evil father. And uh, I think it's very, very good for us to realize that in terms of our own lives. I mean, you have related to these kings of the Old Testament. You have very, very godly kings whose sons turn out to be very, very ungodly and wicked. It happens. Children grow up, they make their own decisions in life, and they then make themselves and their legacy what they make of their lives and their legacy. And then there's other times where you would have this terrible, wicked king and you'd think, wow, what kid could be raised in the middle of a guy so demonic that he's rolling his kids into the fire and doing all of this kind of stuff? I mean, all of those boys are going to be good for nothings and a great, great king comes out of it. That's the that's the glory of God in this world and the and the realization that all of us have. No matter what background we come from in life, no matter how evil the parents have been, no matter if you've been raised in gangs, a crummy uncle of this, of that, no matter what our history is, all of us can choose to have a godly life in choosing God 
and then leaving a godly legacy in the world. And so this is a, it's always a great, great encouragement to me, not necessarily related to my life, but just because it's a message that needs to be spoken today. And again, you, you talk about here I am, I'm uh, 55 years old. I'm going to say that as many times as I can because my birthday's coming up pretty quick. And that next year sounds really old. But anyway, sounds really old to some of you anyway. But... Um, but I, I can look back at a time in our nation when the family unit was much more sane and much more healthy and much more stable. And it produced, in general, uh, far healthier children and citizens. And today, I mean, it, the way some people are raised, even in our community, but also all around our nation, it would be better that they had been left out in the forest and raised by wolves than to be raised in the ungodly environment of what they're seeing on that computer, what's on that television that anyone and every relative is putting on there and they've been exposed to since they've been born or what they've seen or what they've already been addicted to in life before they even become an adult and know what freedom is and to realize what they've thrown away. And so I like to say this. I like to plant hope in people's lives that because God is active in this world, we don't have to follow whatever the legacy was of our parents or those that came before us. Chapter 17, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, uh, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king in Israel, in Samaria, and he reigned Nine years. And so now we go to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, and we're introduced now to the final king uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And chapter 17 is a record of the death of the northern kingdom of Israel. And more important than, and uh, more valuable to us than simply being a record of the final death throes and, and the, the death of the northern kingdom of Israel, God includes in the chapter the reasons why that nation died, why it moved from the incredible promises that God had given to it to ending in this violent, uh, terrible, terrible uh, way. And so it's an extremely valuable chapter to us. And so here is this final king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he's um, when we get into uh, Second Chronicles um, and and when we're told here that he did evil, it doesn't tell us that he followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all of Israel to sin. He probably when he became king, he realized how serious and vulnerable the nation was, how wicked it was, how vulnerable it was in terms of God's judgment and being taken over by the Assyrians. And so he realizes, man, we just can't be plowing down this road to greater and greater evil with every generation. We've got to turn this thing around some way. Now, and the reason that we figure that there might be some of that thinking going on in his mind is there's no mention of here of him of leading the nation in the following of the idolatry of Jeroboam. Another indication in Second Chronicles is that in the southern kingdom, when Hezekiah invited all of Judah and, and Israel in the north to come and celebrate the Passover with them, 
this king Hoshea allowed those messengers to come up into the northern kingdom of Israel and invite the nation. And he allowed people to go down, return to the worship of the Lord and keep the Passover if they wanted to. Now, the nation as a whole, they laughed and they mocked at at the messengers that had come up from Judah. But here's a king who was giving them a chance. But by now, at this point in the time of the northern kingdom of Israel, it's been too much evil for too long. There's no turning this thing around. And it certainly wasn't going to get turned around by half measures. And that's all this guy was about. He didn't want to fully repent of his evil, turn the nation toward God. And so there you go. You keep walking down that path and and you're going to get hammered on it, just like God said they would in the law of Moses. So shall Menezer, the king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. So there came a point in time where Assyria came against uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and said, you've become a vassal nation uh, to us. You're just one of our satellite nations here. You're under our uh, authority. And so he, recognizing that he's not in a position of strength, but a position of weakness, he agrees to that, and he agrees to pay Assyria a certain amount of money. But then he has a change of mind, and uh, we're told that the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by uh, Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow the king of Egypt and, boy, that'd be an easy name to learn in kindergarten, wouldn't it? Just two letters, S-O. So he sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and he brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, uh, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria came in and uh, had him arrested, shut him up in prison, bound him there in prison. So what happened is he was recognized by the Assyrian uh, government and allowed to be the king of Israel as as they were a vassal. That king then died. His son then became the king, and Hoshea looked at it and said, all right, maybe we've got a moment of weakness here in the Assyrian Empire. He goes to Egypt and says, why don't we form a confederation uh, against Assyria and uh, stop paying them tribute and break off from them. And so he did that, and then the son became aware of it, and he's... uh, Uh, not interested in having the empire fall apart under him. And so he goes in and he dealt very, very strongly with it. Now, the king of Assyria then went throughout all of the land there in Israel, and he went up to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel at the time, and he besieged it for three years. And so uh, it took a, a while, even with the greatness of their army, in order to come in and Uh, and to break uh, through the capital city. But in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took uh, Samaria, carried away Israel, carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by Habor, the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. And so here's uh, Hoshea. He takes and he uh, turns to Egypt, and it's just so ironic. Um, makes you want to cry in your spirit. It's so ironic. Here is God who has 740 years, something like that, earlier in their history. He has delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. 
And now they're going back to Egypt for help in all of this, rather than turning to God, who was willing to be approached by them and and do some good for them. Fascinating for those of you who want to take a note and read it a little bit later. Uh, the it, when you read in uh, Isaiah chapter 30, verses one through five, Hosea chapter seven, verses 11 through 13. And some of you that are familiar with the Old Testament prophecies, you see this constant rebuke by God toward Israel and also Judah. Why are you turning to Egypt for help? Egypt's a symbol of the world. In the scriptures, I, I delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. Why would you go back into bondage rather than returning to me in prayer and then watching me bring you deliverance? And the idea was if they had done it, God would have done something on their behalf, but it would have required something of them that they were not willing to do. And that something was to repent of their sin. They, they knew fully what they were doing. We've got Egypt over here. It's all politics. It's all power. It's all the flesh. It's all the fallen world and all. And, and we've got God over here. We've got promises that are yea and amen. We've got a God who is gracious, who calls on us to turn to him. And even in our wickedness, when we'll repent and God will do great things for us. But if we go over here. We know we've got to repent of our sin in order to do this over here. We don't have to repent of our sin. We'll go over here. You look at our nation, the United States of America. You put that choice in front of our nation. You say, if the day were to come where we find ourselves in a similar place like this and say, this whole thing is just going down the tubes before your very eyes. There's no future for this nation. It's going to go into bondage, maybe not militarily, but economically to all of the other nations of the world. And here's your choice. You can do this political thing. You can turn over here, do all of this kind of thing and and have no results, no mercy, no grace. Or you can turn to God, but it'll require repentance. Do you think our nation at this point in time would repent of its sin even for that? end? I don't think they would. I don't think they'd give up abortion. I don't think they give up their pornography. I don't think they give up uh, the uh, worship of of pleasure and the freedom to live contrary to God every single day. So it's not, you know, it's not some far fetched thing, this history that's so uh, distant from us. And, and, And so here's the choice. They don't want to repent. And so here they go and and make these approaches to Egypt, which the prophets in the Old Testament, as as I was mentioning, as you read it over and over again, God says, why are you going to Egypt? Why are you going to Egypt? Why are you going to Egypt? I, I led you out of Egypt so long ago. It's only going to end in imprisonment. And so it did. For it was uh, for so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. Now, with uh, Hoshea's imprisonment, uh, that meant that Israel, uh, during the three years that Samaria was under siege by the Assyrians, uh, that meant the, uh, the capital in the entire country was without a king. 
And 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 so here here it is after 250 years of just constant sin and rebellion after 20 evil kings, just one right after another. You can lay out their names. Finally, the nation of Israel is taken captive by the enemy, by Assyria. And then comes all of the pain, all of the destruction, all of the loss of life. And the thing that's hardest for some of us uh, to watch as we read our Bibles is to realize all of it was completely unnecessary. You know, it's one thing to watch history unfold. It's one thing to watch uh, a nation go from the potential of greatness, which was what was given to Israel to not only fail in that, but utterly fail in it and be taken uh, by uh, these nations in the world. But when you look at it and you say, none of that had to happen. Not a single father had to die. Not a single child had to to die. Not a single mother had to die. None of this needed to happen. And it just, for me, it just kills me to watch this kind of unnecessary uh, harm and pain done in, in, in the world, but it's a part of the world and the choices that people make. Now, what's really valuable to us here as well is beginning in verse 7, the Lord now lists the causes for their going into captivity to the Assyrians. And so it gives us really the marks of a vassal nation, uh, uh, the marks of a nation that has given up uh, their self-determination, given up their sovereignty, given up their freedom. It gives us the marks of a nation that is in decline. And the marks of a nation who, in this decline, if they continue in that decline, then they will ultimately go into bondage. Now, I know that the United States of America is not Israel, and Israel is not the United States of America. They're two entirely different things. But in terms of history, what weakens a nation and brings a nation down in history, it's the same things. It is fascinating, though, to recognize that the United States of America is closer to as a Gentile sort of nation, is closer to Israel than probably any other nation in the world, in that we were built in the beginning upon a foundation of God's word, Old Testament and especially New Testament. And so here they are. They throw away. It's one thing for the Edomites to be conquered. It's another thing for the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and all of them to be conquered. They have no heritage with God. They have, you know, they have um, they don't have that kind of revelation and relationship with God. It was a bigger deal for them. They sinned against greater light and to going into bondage. And so the same way we're related to our nation, we. We have had we have a Christian heritage. We have a Bible heritage. It doesn't mean everybody has walked with God since the nation began. That's not true at all. But by and large, and certainly until the development of my generation in in American history, even if people were not Christians, they did agree upon a biblical definition of right and wrong. And 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 because the biblical definition of right and wrong was at the foundation of the founding of this nation. And so here is this kind of uh, short list that God gives us, and he gives it to us uh, for a reason, for the causes of their uh, captivity. And he tells us once again in verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned. 
That's, that's the number one cause here was sin had sinned against the Lord their God. Now, they had sinned like crazy in all directions. But all sin is first and foremost against God before it's ever against anybody else. Remember David in his psalm of, uh, of repentance, Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned in speaking uh, to the Lord. And so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had been nothing but good to them. That's a paraphrase, but that's the deal. He had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He brought them out into freedom, gave them birth, gave them a chance, gave them opportunity from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so the first sign here is this addiction to sin, where a nation begins to choose unrighteousness over righteousness, and when that becomes the predominant attitude of the population uh, of, of the nation, and they forget their godly heritage, forget God, forget his, uh, his standard, uh, we want to choose sin, and God got us going, he birthed us going forward, but now we're going to jettison him because we love our sin more than we love God. Well, check. <laughs> The second characteristic is they had feared other gods. And so there was no longer any fear of the true and the living God. And that was manifest in that God's word, which exalts above his name, God's word was no longer the standard of right and wrong in the nation of Israel when they went into uh, captivity. And so that moved away as the standard within the nation, even as we see it happening and well advanced in our own nation. And they had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the world had cast out from before the children of Israel and the kings of Israel, which they had made. And so they then became conformed to uh, the, the uh, sinfulness and the fallenness of the world around them because the word of God uh, ceases to be the definition of right and wrong. Then uh, they become like the sin-filled world around them. You can have a standard for right and wrong. If it doesn't come from the Bible, then it comes from the world. And so this was the progression that they made. And as they accepted the world's definitions of right and wrong, lo and behold, they began to look more and more like the world. And the children of Israel, also the children of Israel, secretly did against the Lord their God things which were not right. And so the proliferation of secret sin, the increase of private wickedness in the population. And then number five, he lists here the idolatry. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. I mean, just paganism and idolatry everywhere. And there they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. The interesting thing is that when a person ceases to worship the Lord, they never cease worshiping. Everybody worships. 
There isn't a, a single person. You have people say, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. There are no practical atheists in the world. Everybody worships. Everybody has a master passion in their life. That's just the way that it is. And so when a person moves from the worship of the true and the living God, like Israel did, it doesn't mean that they stopped worshiping God. It just means they switched what they worship. And so they moved over to the worship again of Molech, which is the worship of lust. They moved to the worship of Mammon, which is the worship of money. It's really the worship of power, but power comes through money. And so you, they just basically did kind of a, a sin shuffle or an idol shuffle here. They, and they brought in the idols instead of uh, the worship uh, of the Lord. And so just because people don't bow down before some physical idol that they have on the mantle in, in their house, it doesn't mean that they're not worshiping something. So you can worship Molech, you can worship Mammon, and, and never have some kind of physical symbol of it uh, in, in the house. It can be in, in, our, in our own heart. And so the nation was no longer, you know, uh, uh, it, it no longer stood for God. It no longer stood for his word. It, it stood for these other things. And so this was this progression of collapse. I think about... Our nation. I ask myself on a regular basis because I I follow the news, which is unfortunate for some of you because for some of you this is so depressing. But um, you know, it's the old saying you know related to history. One thing we've learned from history that is we learn nothing from history, but we do need to learn something from history. But I watch the military and I watch the don't ask, don't tell thing, and I see this and I see the nation changing as a as a nation in terms of what is right and wrong, what's worship, what is the American dream, what is it mean to say when I'm in Germany or whether I'm in Israel or whether I'm in Bolivia to say I'm an American? What does that produce within the mind of other people around the world for what it stands for? And I think to myself, as this thing moves away from standing for being a nation that wants to do good and do right and be an influence for good in, in the world, pretty soon, who are, you, who are you going to get to join that military? Are they going to go, are they going to, you're going to get 18 and 19 year olds and 30 year olds and 40 year olds to go put their life on the line so that all of us back here can worship Molech and Mammon? I mean, the consequences of the decisions that are being made are so far reaching until, until they fully develop and then they make the headline and everybody goes, what in the world happened to our military? Why can't we get anybody to join it? Because people that join it, a lot of the people that join it anyway, they do it because they believe in the nation. But if it just becomes about, okay, you get to worship man. This nation is all about just worshiping sex, worshiping my flesh, and making a lot of money. And I'll tell you, that's about what I hear from political speeches the last few presidential campaigns. The, the American dream is this. No mention of God, no mention of any of this stuff. It's just a place to make money and you can do anything you want with your flesh like no, no place else in the world. Well, I don't know. That's not much of a foundation for a nation. It wasn't for Israel and, and it certainly isn't for us or any other nation. And then you notice in verse 13, yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments 
and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but they stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And so God sent prophets to them saying, turn ye, turn ye. Why? You repent of this sin. There's judgment coming. You're going to force me to judge you. It's good to read the early chapters of Hosea at this particular point in time, maybe when you go home tonight or tomorrow or something. It broke God's heart to send these people into the judgment that that the Assyrians brought. He did not want to do it. And you think about all you think about these people were well taught. They were well warned. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, Ezekiel. Well, Ezekiel's a little bit later. But I mean, all of these prophets that he sent, uh, Hosea, Amos, one after another to get their attention. But they were unteachable. They were un- unteachable. They would not listen to what God was telling them, absolutely hard-hearted to anyone standing up and calling on them to turn back to God. What they did, their reaction there in 14, is they just stiffened their necks. The, the imagery there is of a man trying to put a yoke on an ox or something in order to do some plowing, and the ox is stiffening its neck and refusing to allow the yoke to be placed on it. Of course, a yoke is a a instrument for uh, leading, for directing, for being in control, and they just refused uh, God's control. Again, uh, signs of which we see all uh, uh, around, an unwillingness to listen increasingly to the warning that you can't continue indefinitely on this path. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers, And his testimonies, which he had testified against them, they followed idols, became idolaters. That's what happens. And went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do uh, like them. And so they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves. This was Jeroboam's worship. They made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven, the Ashtoreth, and then they also served Baal, this, uh, the worshipping of all of these false gods. And what we see here, notice in verse 17, we see an escalation of uh, evil within the land. So they begin this idolatry of the golden calves, which was kind of a mix of the law of Moses with this thing that Jeroboam had come up with pretty soon uh, over time. They're worshiping uh, Ashtoreth and then pretty soon they're worshiping of Baal. And then in verse 17, they cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, the worship of Molech, the sacrifice of their children to their sin. They then practice witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord and as a result to provoke him to anger. And so this escalating evil within the land and because it happened so slowly and progressively over about 250 years, people just kind of got used to it. You say, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah, but it wasn't always that way. Well, it's just the way that it is. And so the evil just got worse and worse and worse. And we see the same thing today, don't we? And you just look at it and you say, it cannot, it cannot 
decline indefinitely the way the way that it is the escalation of evil and yet everybody just shrugs their shoulder and uh, hopes for a miracle i guess and therefore the lord was very angry with israel and removed them from his sight and there was none left but the tribe of judah alone and so when god by the time he removed uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, he judged them, removed them from the land. He just basically he just said, I can't watch it anymore. I've got to remove this from my sight. I can't I can't watch this. Not one more day. What's going on? And so he removed them. And now the only tribe of the uh, related to the or the group related to the children of Israel still in the land uh, of the, uh, the promised land was Judah alone, Israel uh, disappears at this particular point in time. And Judah, also Judah, did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And so here is the warning that God uh, gives here that if Judah follows on the same path, uh, then they're going to uh, go into captivity as well. And, uh, and, and sure enough, 140 years later, they go into captivity to the Babylonians. And the only reason it was a 140 years uh, later than the northern kingdom of Israel is because of good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah who brought revival to the southern kingdom of Judah when there was never a revival uh, up in, uh, in the north. And so uh, the Lord rejected, we're told here, all of the descendants of Israel afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of plunderers uh, until he cast them from his sight. And so the northern kingdom of Israel was plundered by their kings from within. They were also plundered uh, by the, the surrounding nations uh, from without. And so God turned them over and... Uh, uh, to uh, to uh, this kind of vulnerability to the nations uh, around them and uh, and and allowed his judgment to come in in that form in, and and plunder today doesn't need to occur on the basis of uh, a military action a nation can be uh, plundered economically apart from war our nation is being plundered today is being bought up like it's for sale at a, at a fire sale by nations that have money all around the world. You have in principally China. Don't hate the Chinese over it. Don't hate people for being smart. But you have China now buying up energy resources around the world, including in the United States of America, as they're in a position to do so. So you can end up in a place 20 years from now in the United States of America if the Lord tarries and you can look and say, hey, wait a second. How come my energy rates are going through the roof when we've got this coal burning plant right over two counties over and we know the energy's being uh, produced dirt cheap? Ah, that's when it was owned by somebody who cared about the United States of America supremely. But now the Chinese own it, and they just purchased some kind of an energy resource in the United States of America, which is absolutely huge. I forget whether it was natural gas resources or oil or something like that. And they're consolidating that so the day comes when what is even within our borders does not belong to us. We have no control over it. 
People say, oh, those Chinese, look what they're doing and all of <laughs> you can't blame people for looking at a nation and saying, if you are stupid enough to throw your nation away and bankrupt it the way that you are, then don't blame us if we get in line to buy up what's left. And, and so, again, nothing new under the sun. It's a timeless message. God can bring his judgment on sin a lot of different ways that we don't even realize sometimes that it's happening. And so he for he tore Israel from the house of David and they made Jeroboam, the son uh, of Nebat, king. And, and so here is the uh, again, the reason for this plunder, their idolatry that began with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from fo- following the Lord made and made them commit a great sin for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. And they did not depart from them until the Lord removed. And it was the Lord that did this, that he used the Assyrians, but he removed Israel out of his sight. They would. They refused his warnings. They remo- he removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said, by all his servants, the prophets, he had warned them and warned them and warned them that if they didn't turn, the judgment would come. And so one day it did. And so Israel was carried away uh, from their own land to Assyria as it is uh, to this day. I think that it's very helpful and we're going to stop here tonight. But I want to turn to one other scripture in, in just kind of closing out. Uh, this particular passage, because this um, for some of us, we may sit and listen to what we've just looked at tonight and the death of a nation and the subsequent autopsy of that nation and uh, think that it's just this ancient history. And really, why do we bother needing to know anything about it? But the. Going into captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel is one of the uh, great events of the Old Testament. I don't mean great in the sense of good, but very significant event them them going into this captivity. And so as we go through the prophets later on in the Old Testament and and it, it allows us to understand what happened, what led up to it, why they went into captivity and and then why they came back from captivity back into the land once again. So it's not some minor thing. It, it, it dominates the rest of the Old Testament. So it's important to know a little something about it. And I'd like us just to turn back to Leviticus chapter 26 and uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book uh, of the Bible. And I just want to read because I think it's helpful. Leviticus, a portion of it, chapter 26 to understand a little bit of the context related to this great collapse of of the northern kingdom of Israel. God had warned them. Leviticus chapter 26. God declared, you shall not make idols for yourself, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. 
nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, no idolatry, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season, the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. There will never be a shortage of food. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace to the land, and you shall lie down. And none will make you afraid. I'll rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies. They'll fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and then clear it out to make room for the new. No hunger. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and, your, and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk in uprightness. I mean, you just look at that, and, and in light of what we've read tonight, all of that was sitting there for them. That life, in contrast to where they ended up, all of that, all of those promises, God was just sitting on his hands, waiting to bless them in that way. But then he said in verse 14, if you don't obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes or if you, your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make the heavens like iron and the, your earth like bronze and your strength will be spent in vain and your land will not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. And then you shall walk contrary to me and are not will if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. And I will send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock and make you few in number and your highways will be desolate. And if by these things you're not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. And I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. I'll bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And when I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven and they shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall eat and not be filled. And after all this, if you don't obey me, but walk contrary to me, 
then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters as they did. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aroma. And I will bring the land of desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished by it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste, and then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. And then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts and the hands of their lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from the sword and they shall fall when no one pursues the greatness of fear as a result of their defeats. And they shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword. When no one pursues and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies lands also in their father's iniquities, which were are with them. They shall waste away. And so God then goes on to speak about how he's going to restore them. And that's a little bit later in their history, because ultimately they do repent in the land of their captivity and he brings them back. But I wanted to read this because God was fair with them. He was just up front and he said, this is how it works. These decisions I can bless. These decisions I must, by my very nature and out of love for you, I must resist and I must judge. And you look at the two, the contrast between the two qualities of life. One is just stupendous, not having to worry about anything in life. And the other one is just a picture from a science fiction movie. It's just a pure horror. And all of it hinged, it all turned on one simple thing, one simple issue. And the issue was obedience, obedience to God. That's the power and the importance of this thing called obedience. Obedience produces one quality of life. Disobedience produces an entirely different quality of life, so to speak, the importance of obedience God does not, and here's the sobering thing, God does not talk to hear himself talk. He talks because he means what he's saying, and what he's saying is important and needs to be listened to. And we carry it over into the New Testament, and the importance of obedience in our Christian lives so that we don't give up on an individual level our freedom, our self-determination, our sovereignty and sell ourselves into bondage. 
And so the importance of this thing called obedience. God had warned. They they disobeyed him and then acted like he didn't exist. But he did exist. And he exists today. And so tonight. I may be here. We've got a Sunday night group and you say, why don't you say this to the Sunday morning group? You've got all this. I mean, we're come out on a Sunday night. I mean, this is the this is the core. This is people who really want to walk with God. Yeah, I get that. I understand that. I don't like the Sunday morning group either. I'm just I'm just totally kidding. They're listening on the simulcast at the moment. But the the point is, though is that these are important lessons to be built into our spirit. They give us a sobriety about these things. And they do check us because it's within our own hearts to begin to accommodate these same things that destroyed the nation of Israel. And they will destroy our walk with God and our intimacy with God. And so they're important lessons to be appropriated into our own lives. So let's stand together and let's pray. Before we do, and as the worship team comes forward, just want to let you know if you sit here tonight and you're not yet.